On the year that the Civil War was ended in, the, in America, a tiny baby was born in Bombay, India. And probably nobody in America knew of his birth or cared because we were involved in our own um, problems that related to the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so in 1865, this man, this baby was born, and nobody in America knew about it, probably. He was born to a father who was the curator of a famous museum in Bombay, and it wasn't long until the father was aware that his son was not a usual, a usual boy. He was a genius. And so he sent him to the finest schools in Great Britain, and he graduated from the greatest universities there. And by the time he was 41, he had already won the Nobel Prize for Literature. The critics who read his uh, literature, his gifted writings, said that he had the supreme spell of a storyteller. But he never lost touch with humanity. There were some who criticized him for being too, quote, earthy, for he never lost sight of the poor. And one day Rudyard Kipling wrote his son these immortal lines. If you can keep your head when all those around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you and make allowances for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired of waiting or being lied about, don't tell lies. And being hated, don't not to give way to hating, and yet don't look too good or talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can listen to the truth you have spoken, Twisted by knaves to make a track for fools, or watch the things you give your life to broken and stop and build them up again with worn out tools. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue and walk with kings and yet not lose the common touch. If neither friends nor foe can hurt you, if you can feel the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Ah, yours is the earth and all that's in it. And what's more, you'll be a man, my son. Eighteen and a half centuries before these immortal lines were written, there was a man who perhaps embodied or modeled the life of Jesus more than any other person who has ever lived. A man who lived the ideal of these words more than any other person, perhaps, who has ever lived. Most of the time when others lost their heads, he kept his. Most of the time when others hated, he did not. And he watched the things he taught twisted and the things to which he resolutely had given himself broken. And yet in all of it, he was indeed a man. But even the Apostle Paul had his rough days. There were times when he lost his head. 
And there were times when the hatred and the anger and the resentment begin to crop in. And there were times when he saw his truth so twisted and the things to which he had given his life so shattered that he almost lost it all. There were times when he wasn't really the embodiment of these ideals that these words speak. You'll see that in the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts. He had his tough days. In the 22nd chapter, he was beaten by a mob of people and he was in great pain. And the Romans came in and because he was a Roman, they rescued him and they tied him to a stump and they were going to beat him to just see if they could get out of him what was going on with this man and the Jews. But when they found out he was a Roman, they released him and he was hungry and exhausted and thirsty. And they brought him in, did this Roman uh, group, and they thrust him down before the council, as it's called in chapter 20, verse 22. It It was the Jewish Sanhedrin. They threw him down before the Sanhedrin, and now he's going to be quizzed and charged and tried by them. The council, or the Sanhedrin, was a group of 70 men of the Jews they were, the men of the, they were men of the finest pedigrees, and yet they were not all good men, but they were all committed to the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible. And these men were placed on the council, 70 of them, and they were placed there for life. You stayed as a member of the Sanhedrin until death or defection. The council was made up of two different groups, there were the Sadducees, the smallest number in the smallest in number, and the Sadducees were the people who denied the supernatural. They rejected any concepts of thought of spirit, holy spirit, angels, and a personal devil. They rejected the possibility of miracles. Then there were the Pharisees, a part of this council, and they were the most influential, the larger group in number. And they were committed not only to the Torah, but they were committed to the written law, those traditions handed down verbally across the years. They were like the Puritans of yesteryear. And theologically, there was a vast difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were of the free will mindset, the free will theology. The Pharisees were the the election crowd, the, the predestinarians. And so if you wanted to get a conflict, if you wanted to divide the Sanhedrin, you just bring up things regarding the supernatural and you bring up concepts about predestination or free will. And these people clashed. They went together. That's the background of the Sanhedrin. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Here Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Verse 1, Paul begins to be defensive. Um, He's saying, I've got a clear conscience. In other words, there's real reason for me to be here. He is defending himself before the Sanhedrin. And verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded this, those standing beside him, to strike him on the mouth. They said, just backhand this guy. And they did. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, arter me to be struck? Uh, Barclay says in his commentary that it was a part of the Jewish law, this statement, to strike an Israelite on the cheek is to strike the glory of God. And the Apostle Paul says, you whitewashed walls, do you dare strike me in the mouth? I don't think we understand what he meant by that, whitewashed walls, because it's not a part of our culture. But in that day when somebody, was, somebody died, they entombed them in a kind of a, in a hole in, a, in, a, in a, the side of a mountain or hill, kind of in a cave. And they rolled a great stone over in front of that, um, the entrance, and all around it they whitewashed it. They painted it white so that everybody would know where a dead body was entombed. Because none of the Jews, no Jew, no religious man would touch anything dead or anything that contained dead things. And so the Apostle Paul was really looking at these guys after he kind of wiped the blood off his mouth and said, you dirty hypocrites. It's the idea that Jesus talked about when he referred to the Pharisees as the whited sepulchres. And so here's this man, after being struck in the mouth, he retaliates and he says, you dirty hypocrites, you've broken the law yourself. Now look at verse 4. But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? Um, there was also a, a, a law that, that de declared or commanded that no one would say a, a word in judgment against the high priest. Now look at verse 5, and I want you to hang in and watch this. And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. I am aware, he said, that you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now I want you to understand what happened there. Here is the apostle Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. He himself at one time was a member of this group. And he longed to be able to go back to Jerusalem and bear testimony. What an opportunity. Now he's standing before the Sanhedrin and he's going to bear testimony of Jesus Christ. But he lost his head. In that groom, a dimly lit room, couldn't see perhaps everybody there, didn't recognize Ananias when he stood the high priest. He knew that he was not to speak against him and he was, he was a man who followed the Scripture. But in that the heat of that moment, in the retaliation, he, he lashed back and called him a dirty hypocrite and spoke evil against the high priest. Isn't it amazing? In the heat of anger, sometimes we think, say those things we wish we could unsay, but we can't. And we blow it. We have these tremendous opportunities to bear witness, a chance of a lifetime to stand for God but we lose our head and we blow it. That's what happened. My professor at evangelism at, at um, Southwestern, Dr. Ken Chafin, tells about when he was pastor of the James Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth, he was a single man and he got his laundry done at a certain place and he got his shirt starched and, and washed at this laundry. And he said he liked to have the collars real stiff and these creases and he had them just like he wanted. One day he went to get his shirts and uh, they, they weren't like, he'd, like he ordered them. And he said, I just lost my temper. He said, it had been a bad day, and I'd had some hassles at the church, and he said, I just lost my temper, and before I knew what I was doing, I was just telling those people off, you know, what in the world are you down here doing? You know, you, this is your business, and this is the kind of product you put out, and he just said, I gave them a good dressing down. 
And he said, I decided I'd just take my business somewhere else. About two years later, he became the professor of evangelism at Southwestern, and he joined Travis Avenue Baptist Church when he took that position. And he said the first night of visitation, he came and he got some cards to go out and visit. And he took his card and he looked at it. He said, I, I know that name. That name sounds so familiar. Who is that? I know I know those people. And he said, I was thinking all the time as I got in my car and, and drove out to the address, who is this person? I know I know this guy. I know I've met him. He said, I walked up to the door and rang the doorbell and there he stood the guy that had messed up my shirts, the guy I'd dressed down in the moment of resentment and anger and, 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 and temper. And he said, I, when I door opened, he said, I just died. And he said, I just kind of uh, invited him to church and told him that I was now a member of Travis. And he said, oh, I thought on my way back, oh, if I just could unsay what I said. Isn't it amazing sometimes how we can blow it? And there the Apostle Paul, this man, lost his head in the chance of a lifetime to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. But perceiving that one part were Pharisees, Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now, guess who that pleased? The Pharisees were saying, Amen, Paul, go get them now. And it's just fixing to get in an uproar. And, and as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the, Pharisee, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all, and there arose a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue, heatedly saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, isn't that hilarious? Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to this man, smarter than we thought he was, an angel, a spirit spoken to this guy to get him to say what he said. And as a great dissension, verse 7 says that there was a dissension. Verse 10 says there was a great dissension and it's beginning to mount and everything is in an uproar. And the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops, the Romans are coming in now, to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into a barracks. Are you with me? But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said... Scratch out the word take. It's not there in the Greek. He said, And the Lord stood at his side and said, Courage. Um, it's just as amazing that just when we need him, Jesus is always there. Just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear, ready to help, ready to cheer, just when I need him most. Immediately on the next night, the Lord came to him. It's in red print in my book because I got a red letter edition. The Lord himself, Jesus himself, stood beside the apostle and said, Courage. Now I want to give you, I love these little verses that, that just kind of expose the grace of God. I want you to notice the grace that just floods out of that verse. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem... Well, Paul had just made a mess of it. 
He'd blown the witness at Jerusalem. But as solemnly you've witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And God's grace just supersedes His failure. He all, it always does. Um, I think there are so many times that I can think of tonight, and I won't, it's none of your business when, but there's so many times in my life where I just feel like that God could just uh, check me out. I'll just make a mess of it. There's nothing like the grace of God to give you that sense of invincible mission. And so God comes to him and he says, Hey, courage, you've been a good witness. And old Paul's been kicking himself all night long. What a failure he's been. God says, Courage, as you've been witness in Jerusalem, you're going to be witness in Rome. And that's the goal and the dream of the apostle. We've already noticed this. He's going to, his goal and dream is to go to Rome and preach in Caesar's palace. And he's not disqualified because of his mistake in Jerusalem. Isn't that beautiful? You can fail the Lord, but you're not disqualified. Isn't that great? If God had put me on the shelf for all the times I'd failed Him, I wouldn't be here tonight. The marvelous grace of God just keeps coming back and giving us the second chance and the third chance and the fourth. Now you might think, well, the pressure's off now, but the pressure wasn't off. The pressure's mounting. You might think that since God told Him, you're going to go to Rome, everything's going to be all right, and all the problems were over and all the pressure mounts just to see if Paul really believes him. Look at verse 12. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there was more than 40 who farmed this plot. More than 40 men met together and they said, we won't eat or drink until that man's dead. And this is, the, this is the scenario, this is the plot. And they came to the chief priest and the elders and they said, We've bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander, this is the plot, to bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his cause by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. We'll be on the side somewhere down the street where you bring him, and we'll ambush him and put him to death. Did you know that passage was in there? Did you know Paul had a nephew? F.F. F. Bruce, in his book, Paul, the Apostle of the Heartfelt heart set free says that this is the only only place in any New Testament document where there is any indication, there is any record of Paul's relatives and it is, he said a tantalizingly fleeting one it's the only place you'll ever find it. Now here's this kid I mean he's a little boy, we'll see that in just a minute he's riding his tricycle, you know uh, down the street in Jerusalem, and he overhears this plot. You know, he overhears these men. We're going to go down. We're going to ambush the Apostle Paul. And, 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 and the only time we, we see any, any record of any of Paul's relatives, just all of a sudden he pops up there, this boy. You know why? Because Paul has already been promised by God that he's going to spare his life in Jerusalem, take him to Rome. Let me tell you what, you can count on the promises of God. Now watch this. But the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush. Little kid, he rolled his tricycle up to the barracks. 
And how did he get in the barracks? Well, God just enabled him to get in the barracks. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he, was, he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand. He's a child. And stepping aside, begin to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he told him what he'd overheard. Look at verse 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And next week we'll discover that with these 200 men, they ushered Paul out of Jerusalem on his way to Caesarea because God kept his promise. Let me tell you something happened to me today. I got up this morning about, uh, you know, early. Early for me on Sunday is uh, uh, not that early really, but I got up early and I went in to have my quiet time. And I prayed for my children as I always pray for them, each one of them by name. And I shared with you this morning that uh, my, my daughter, uh, who is somewhat shy, has been transferred to Del Rio, Texas. And I made a little, some little smart cracks about Del Rio, you know, about where... Moses struck the rock. It is a wild jumping off place. I mean, it's right out on the border. I've been there. And in my quiet time this morning, I was praying for Cindy. And I, I, know, I noticed that she is homesick and lonesome and frightened down in Del Rio. Knows nobody down there. Transferred with her job. Latin Americans are 90% of Del Rio. It's right on the river. And I was praying for her. I asked God somehow to send her somebody that would encourage her and and be her friend. I came into the service this morning and I made those cracks about Del Rio. I was standing back there at the door and somebody came up with a couple and said, I want you to meet these people from Del Rio, Texas. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, if you're a member of the Chamber of Commerce down there, I bet you're plenty mad at me. I have never met in my life, as far as I know, anybody from Del Rio, Texas. I don't know anybody from Del Rio. And these people are on a vacation and they were just passing through Durant and stopped in the service just by accident. You believe that? I don't believe it. And I didn't plan to say anything about Del Rio. I don't have anything against that one horse town down there. I don't have any, I don't have any problems with Del Rio. And I don't know why I said that. I, I, when I got up and I was thinking about depression, I just said that. And I know that God prompted and caused me to say that. If I hadn't said it, they wouldn't have known my daughters in Del Rio. And they came up, and he's a deacon in the First Baptist Church. And he said, I own a motel. He said, where's your daughter staying? And, he's, uh, he, and I said, well, she's staying in a motel down there because she can get her. He, she, he said, what motel is it? And I told him, he said, well, look, I'm a... I'm, I own a motel. Gave me his card. Desert Hills Motel. And he said, I'll tell you what we'll do when we get back to Del Rio. We'll take her in. And we'll encourage her and we'll help her. I mean, he sends Paul's nephews just everywhere, doesn't he? Isn't that amazing? And I want you to hear me right now when with my voice I praise God. And I thank Him for that kind of evidence that He answers prayer 
And it encourages my heart to know tonight, it encourages my spirit in the heart of me to know this tonight, that God's going to take care of, of His people. He's going to take care of us. And sometimes it may not seem like it, and there'll be sometimes when He comes just in the nick of time and with the, in, the, in the strangest ways... But when He comes, He comes with 200 soldiers and spearmen and chariots and horses and He leads, uh, um, and he leads us out of our Jerusalems to the Caesareas and the Romes of His promise. That's the way God is. Now I see two applications from these verses. I want to give you these and then I'm through. There are two things that stand out in this account. One is that the grace of God can overcome any guilt. The grace of God can overcome any guilt. I was talking to one of my friends this week, a young man who's, who's um, just been saved and he's come out of a real... You've heard his testimony. And we were talking about, you know... What about, what about the guilt that's there for the past? I told this young man that an experience that happened to me, true story, right after I was saved, really turned my life over to God. I was a senior in high school and I surrendered to preach. And I was, I mean, I was really low. I was thinking, how could God use me with all the bad I've done, all this guilt I had? It was just devastating. And I went to church the next Sunday... And the preacher got up, and I know, he was, I know he was led of God to say what he did because he said just what I needed. He said, let the sun represent God. Let your shadow represent your past. If you keep your back toward God, your sin, your past is ever before you. That's what the psalmist said. But he said, when you turn your life over to God, you remember that your past is behind you for good. And as you keep your eyes on the Lord, you don't have to look at your sin, your shadow, your sin, your past is back there. And immediately that burden was lifted. The grace of God can overcome any guilt. And if you feel like that you've just blown it so bad, God will never be able to use you. And you've just messed up so royally that God will never be able to get any good out of your life. You just remember this. The grace of God is greater than our sin. There's a second thing. And that is that the power of God can overcome any plot. The power of God can overcome any plot. Now there are a lot of, there are a lot of obstacles, there are a lot of problems, there are a lot of barriers tonight that just loom so big before us. God's bigger than them all. He's bigger than Del Rio and uh, all of that. God is bigger than any plot. Stand still, he said, and see the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can turn to your word and find hope for ourselves even today. And because we see that hope there, we can keep our heads while others lose theirs. We can love when others hate. 
we can see our dreams being broken, our truth being twisted. And we can go on knowing that it's going to all come out just like you planted in the ultimate. Because you're the God who's in control. And we thank you that even though we just mess up and fail, and we do the things, the very things we say we'll never do again, we do them again and again. And your grace overrules. And the vessel is marred, and so you begin again. Oh, God of grace, God of love, God of patience, we love you. We give you thanks for the reality of your presence, your power, your leadership in our lives. Now we pray for this moment of invitation. It will bring glory to your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now I'm going to ask you to make these decisions tonight if God leads you to make them. I'm going to ask you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. Some strange and perhaps some unusual reasons and ways you've come tonight. You may have not even planned to come, but God led you to come to this service. And God has spoken to your heart. You know you're not a Christian. You know you've never trusted Christ. You know if you were to die tonight, you wouldn't go to heaven. If you stood before God, you'd have no answers. You'd like to come to say, I want to give my heart to Jesus Christ, and I want Him to come into my life, and I want to be saved. Or you might need to come tonight to join the church. Many are doing that, college students. I imagine half the people in this auditorium tonight are young people and college students. And you sense that God is leading you maybe to place your life here because of ministry and, and fellowship and service. We want you to come and not wait another day. The semester will be over before you know it. Come and place your life here. Or you may need to come to say, Pastor, God just keeps on giving me chance after chance, and I've just been away from Him. I haven't been serving Him, living for Him. I've blown it. I want to come out in the light of God's grace and make things right and serve God in a better way. And I think you will do it. I think you're going to. So we're going to have guys down here at the front, and they're going to visit with you when you come, and we're going to sing. Larry's going to lead you. You come while we sing.